OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to the Supporters Fund, Ask an Investor. I'm your host, Jeffrey Potvin. Let's please welcome David Evans, the managing partner of Centero Ventures as our investor for today. Welcome, David. It's a real pleasure having you join us. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me. Well, we're very excited, David. I know we got to see each other at Collision. Uh, we've been chatting, I guess, on and off for a couple of years. So excited to kind of dive in. And the big reason is that you're also a tech investor and I like tech. And being the fact that I'm an ex-software engineer, it's very rare that you get to have a deep talk about, well, deep tech and all this great stuff. So I think we're going to have a great discussion around that. But also, I think what really stands out, and hopefully you can share a little bit about yourself and you know, go far back is uh, your Connecticut University days. But really, you have a great story. You started coding at 14 years old, built a couple of companies, sold them, so many great things in there. So maybe you can share a little bit about your background where you're at today, and then one thing about you that we wouldn't know. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, I think kind of the, I, I always describe it as I'm a technologist, entrepreneur, and, and investor in that order, right? And and some of it is because I did start coding at 14 years old on a TI-85 graphing calculator, um, wrote Blackjack, uh, wrote Blackjack, and it went viral in, in my high school, right? And this is the day, this is the days before you had the web to go viral. Like, we had little sync cables to make it go viral. Um, so started coding really, really young without a lot of direction. I had natural propensity for it. Um, you know, and it, that's why I say I'm a, I'm a technologist first, right? Um, started my first business at 19 while actually at Johns Hopkins University. That's where I started my education was at Johns Hopkins. But like all good techies, I dropped out early, right? After my sophomore year, um, I left Johns Hopkins to go work in tech in the, in the middle of the dot-com boom. Um, and, uh, uh, spent about two and a half years, uh, working for a consulting firm and then moved on to an actual dot com that, that went out of business. Um, so I had, had that little bit of a ride and my first exposure essentially to startups, venture capital and angel funding was through, uh, through that, uh, through that startup sold out.com. Um, and when they, uh, when they went out of business, I actually launched my, my second business, Geode Software. Um, that company is the, that company still exists today. It's really just a, a custom software development company, uh, mostly services based, but we develop products for companies for as wide ranging as NASA to uh, digital signage in every Albertsons uh, across the United States. As part of that company, I actually got involved in the secondary ticketing space. Um, so think companies like StubHub, Vivid Seats. Uh, and in 2005, I actually launched uh, launched my own company uh, in the space, Easy Seat. Um, and Easy Seat uh, launched it in 2005. Uh, by 2010, we were 176 on being 500. We were the sixth fastest growing retailer in the country. And it's not because I was a great uh, a great retailer or a great seller of tickets. It was because we had great tech. Right? We automated the distribution of digital tickets as early as 2008. Um, we had predictive pricing models. We had automated pricing. We had um, even tools that could tell us if a if a concert would sell out within 48 hours of, of when it would actually sell out. So it was really about the tech and and not us. Um, wasn't a, wasn't an industry I was passionate in. So I I actually sold that business in in 2015. Um, and at that point, made the shift to the other side of the table into uh, into investing. 
uh, first as an angel investor, working mostly as an angel, and then got involved with a fund here in Dallas, RevTech Ventures, that was focused on, on retail technology, right? I'd been in the e-commerce space, so it was a natural fit to work with David at RevTech. And that was kind of my first opportunity to move from being an angel, where it was my money, uh, to being a, a venture capitalist and, and investing other people. Um, which there's a there's a dynamic there, and I'm I'm happy to share it. But there's a there's a different psychology when you're you become a steward of someone else's money versus versus your own. Um, took that experience with RevTech to to launch Centiero at the start of that start of the pandemic, um, uh, which was not the best time to start. <laughs> it was in January of 2020, uh, but we did raise uh, we did raise a fund. Uh, we're currently in active deployment. We've got nine uh, nine companies in the portfolio. Uh, and expect to make a couple more before uh, before we go out and and raise fund too. So I think that's that, that kind of covers the the background. I think you said the the one thing that um, uh, one thing that people may not know. I, I realistically speaking, I, I I always talk about this. I I never uh, I never intended to start any of my companies. Right. So it wasn't like I had this grand vision of oh I, hey I'm going to go and I'm going to go and build this. Um, you know, Geode, it was sold out.com went out of business, right? They, they flamed out in a dot-com bubble burst. So I, I had a choice to go work for somebody else or start my own business. And I'm sort of a die in the wool entrepreneur. I went and started my own business, right? Um, I'd rather make nothing and, and, and be building something than make six figures and have to answer to somebody else. Um, easy seat was very similar, you know, part of the way I got into the industry was, was through a, a failed partnership with one of my clients at Geode Software. Um, so, you know, that actually got me into the, into the ticketing business, um, and then even venture capital, right? Like it, it wasn't something that, um, you know, it, it was something that just because of my experience, I got connected with RevTech and it really kind of pulled me across the aisle into venture capital. I really only had started making private investments because I like the start phase, right? I like the zero to one of startups, um, which attracted me to, to angel investing. And now it's kind of pulled me over into, into venture capital. Awesome. And, uh, and a great story. And of course, sharing that you started this all at 14 and then kind of worked your way through the, uh, the racket and learning. And uh, well, I guess there was some fails uh, through the companies you work for, but you kind of built and learned what it took to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I guess the first question I'd have is that when you look at being an entrepreneur back when you were 19 versus today, what do you see the big significant differences are? Uh, because like you said, you're like, I could take a six figure job or I could build it myself. Mm -hmm. Was it easier to build it yourself back when you were 19 and go get a six figure job inside of your own startup that long ago? Uh, versus today where it seems to be a lot longer grind and build to get to a six-figure salary? Or is that completely reversed? And um, I'm looking at this the wrong way. How do you kind of envision I, that? I, I mean, I think a lot of it's based on, a lot of it's based on deferred gratification, right? Um, I, I, so personally, it's a lot easier now, right? I've got some pelts on the wall. I've been there. I've done that. Every mistake there is to be made, I, I usually tell founders, you know, I've made that mistake at least three times and there's a good chance I'll try to make it the fourth. Um, but the difference between today and then is, you know, I kind of know it going in, right? I know that, uh, I know that, well, yeah, we probably shouldn't go build a bunch of tech right now. We should go do a little bit more market validation or we should go do, like, I know better, but I may still do it anyway. And that's, it, that is a massive difference and that's a massive change. I think the other thing that, that evolves over time is I usually, uh, I usually always talk about, like, I didn't really learn how to be a CEO, uh, until about call it. 2010 or 2011, right? Like I, I was very much 
Um, I, I was far more tactical. I was far more of a of an operator than a CEO uh, and a true executive. And that's one of the big differences between uh, between then and now. Um, that's on the personal side. From a market side, I think it's actually a lot easier now than it was then, right? You know, things like digital uh, digital funnel, digital acquisition funnels make life so much easier to find customers, to find clients. You know, low code platforms make it so much easier to spin up prototypes and start to validate your idea before you ever actually get going. So I think there's a there's it it's easier to get started, but I think there's so much noise. Going from zero to one is easier than it was 25 years ago. I think going from one and up has actually become more of a challenge because there's just more clutter to have to cut through when you do start to get to get some traction. Yeah, I can totally agree with that because I, I do think that the startup phase, everybody's built enough tools to get you moving quickly. So that zero to one really is quick. And then after that, it's really, how do I find my market? How do I get in, create a segment, uh, find the customers and get them talking to me? You mentioned one thing inside of this, which is you'll probably still make the same mistake, which is go and build the tech. Is that because being a coder and doing this many times, it isn't really a mistake. It's more of you're, you want something tangible to get in front of people to move quicker. So in your mind, you're actually moving quicker because you know how to code and you know how to move, move that dial faster than the average person would. So it's not really a risk or a problem you're doing. What it is, is that you're going to validate quicker. So someone that might take six months to build a system, you're building that in two and you're going to market. So you've already assumed the risk and said, I can do this quickly. Let's get it in, test it, and then start to build out where you fit in the market. Is that a fair assessment? I, I would agree that you know when you when you talk about kind of building to building to prove the market, um, that it it's all about trying to find the right balance, right? Is is how much do you actually go and build? When do you actually take the cover off and and start to engage with customers? You know, humans uh, humans don't have a don't do very well at sort of um, envisioning how things look. I always, you, know, you always stage your home if you're gonna sell it, right? Because you need to give them a picture of how it's gonna work. It's the same thing with tech, right? You kind of need to stage your product well enough so that people can understand how it fits. So I think the, the, the mistake is building a full product, right? The, the, the mistake is actually getting to the point of where you go and you spend, you know, very early on, I spent 18 months building our very first product at Geo Software. At 18 months, our very first sales call, I knew we had a problem, right? Because it was just a wrong market timing. We can go into that later. But ultimately, um, you know, 18 months of effort went down the drain that could have been addressed with that very first sales call, right? Having that very first call with a, uh, with a potential customer would have saved me 18 months worth of actual engineering time. So it's, it's finding that balance, right? So I guess in taking that... Um, what you just shared, is it kind of more of, you know, everybody always says build to this MVP, which completely means, you know, something small and get it to market. And then there's a lot of others that will say, you know, go out and learn from the customer, learn where you want to be, and then build the product and build it with them. So it ties them in. So in the sales process, what you're trying to do is enable the people that you're working with to help them feel empowered by sharing that you're building something that's solving something that they know well, they spent 30 years in this space and you're working with them to build this versus coming in new, building something for 18 months and then dropping it on their lab and saying, this is going to solve all your problems. I know you've been in this space for 30 years. We know better. So here you go. 
Is it kind of that work up and work into the space versus trying to be the solutionist every time and thinking, why doesn't this work? Absolutely. And I, and I think there's there's two distinctions there, right? One is, and, and at Centiero, we like to look at founders that have experience in their industry, right? It may not be a lot, but it may be one or two years or maybe even 10 years or 20 years of experience in the industry to where you do have some of that understanding from the inside, right? At, at that point, and I think this goes back to your question to me earlier, is that you know I when I go and I build that product, I'm going and building it because it's a space that I have some knowledge about, right? So if you have that knowledge, you you probably want to start down that MVP road and start to understand, um, uh, you know, use the MVP as your basis for understanding your market. If you don't have that, then you absolutely start with customer interviews, right? You need to not only understand the problem, but you also need to understand the incentive structures. You need to understand who's your user, who's your buyer. You know, it's the uh, the, the the common thing is, you know, oh, hey, um, this, this industry is still run on paper. Okay, it's 2022. We've had 40 years of desktop computing. We've had, you know, 20 years of, uh, of SaaS. There's probably some other reasons not related to technology that is causing that to happen in that industry. And you need to go, as somebody that doesn't understand the industry, you need to go and find out why. Why are you still using Why are you still using uh, using paper and pencil? Because the answer isn't going to be nobody's built software for this, right? The answer is going to be far more about the incentive structures, the you know friction of deploying software, all of the other things around it, not just the, the actual software itself. So it sounds like when you're working with companies and what you've gained through your your own experience is that you've created, and you said you've made lots of mistakes along the way. So you've kind of almost created a template of where you're seeing a faster way to get from A to B versus here's the standard, what everybody does. They go in, 95% of founders are builders. They just want to build, 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 and they forget to sell. So then when they go out to sell, they wonder why they don't make it. And it's because they haven't actually learned what the market is. And they built something, they built the Lamborghini when they should have been building uh, the Fiat or something. So there's there's a really disconnect between what that entrepreneur knows and what they're trying to achieve. And does that go, and you mentioned experience, but does that go back down to, well, then you should only invest in entrepreneurs that have two to three years, two to three year companies that have done it a couple of times versus someone who's just built their first one because they're going to go through all the mistakes that you really don't want to go through. And it's going to be a long cycle. So just focus on founders that have done it before. Well, I mean, I think that's part of our job as uh, that's part of our job as investors, right? Is you know, and, and as operator investors. So myself and my two partners, um, we've all been entrepreneurs for twenty plus years. We've all scaled companies. We've all had exits, and that's part of our job, right? And that, that's the relationship we want to develop with our founders. Is you know, we can't do the work for our founders. That's just it, it's not how not how things work. But we can help you learn from our mistakes. We can help you learn from. Our experience, and this is what's kind of interesting about sort of even, even on the venture side, is not only our experience from you know 15 years ago running Easy Seed or starting Easy Seed, but also from working with our other portfolio founders, right? Of hey, you know these other three founders are having a very similar problem, and this is the way that we've been able to solve it successfully. The successful them. So I don't think it precludes the first time founder because I think there's there's other pieces that as a as a repeat founder, you you start to get you you may get a little bit jaded, or you may start to get you may start to fall prey to this worked in you know this worked in my last company, therefore it will work in this company. 
um, which isn't always the case, right? There, there's a lot of decisions that you make a, as a CEO that are very predicated on the current team you have, the time in the market, the market you're going after. Like there, there's a what worked for you then may not work. What worked for you then may not work for you today, just because of different sort of um, different extraneous factors. So the experience is obviously key, but it's breaking through the experience and, and not holding yourself to the bad things that you learn, but just using those learnings to kind of shape the next thing going forward. So being open-minded, I guess, across the entire time that you're doing this and not looking at your past mistakes and trying to run away and avoid them, uh, but more trying to accept them and figure out how can I build on this and be stronger or better for the next company. Absolutely. And I, I usually refer to that as, I call that synthesis, right? Of where you're going to take as a founder, if you're taking my advice, I don't ever want you to, uh, if I say, I think you should do X, I don't ever want you to go and just immediately do X, right? Like that's, that's not really the intention. The idea really is for you to synthesize your own experience, my experience, advice, you know, input from advisors, input from other investors, and synthesize that to the current moment that you exist in, in, in your company and in, in kind of the overall market cycle. That's, that's what any founder needs to do. That's what I need to do as an investor. I need to synthesize all of the different information that I consume, even when it comes to, you know, pattern matching is, you know, I, I've been in the ticketing space. I'm not a fan of, I'm not a fan necessarily of companies that are in that market for a lot of reasons, but I constantly have to sort of challenge my assumptions because there, there will be change. There will be evolution. You know, if you had asked people 25 years ago, whether or not consumers would use digital ticketing, they would have told you absolutely not, right? And now ticketing is 100% digital. So you always have to understand the unique timing in the moment. So even if you are an experienced founder, you need to be taking all of these signals and interpreting how they apply, if they apply, and what you do with that information in, in, in your company. So is there a timeline that you look at or working with your founders that you're always iterating on this strategy and this plan. So if you have a company you've made an investment in and they're going forward and they've got this five-year vision, mm -hmm. you, know, you look at companies um, like Toyota, most Japanese manufacturing companies, they've got 20-year models. So they already know where they're going to be in 20 years. They're shaping the market to get them there. So you, you know, maybe that doesn't work so well in a, a startup space. But if you look at the startup, are you asking them to always be looking at that plan reiterate if you have to every month but make sure your whole team is aligned to that plan even if you have to make small pivots inside of that plan are you always trying to iterate on that yeah we we always look at it from the perspective of we want to see we want to see it, sort of an annual plan revisited quarterly and that's what i did when i when i was a ceo um and and even it it dovetails into the bigger vision right so i usually the way i'll describe it is usually the next six months next six to nine months that's usually high certainty, right? Almost 100% probability next six to nine months, you know what's going to happen. The 12 to 24 month period out beyond this, it's a 50-50, right? You have enough information now to understand what should likely happen over the course of the next 12 to 24 months. Beyond 24 months is useful from understanding your potential direction, but realistically speaking, that's going to change a lot, right? A lot of things can change over the course of a 24 month period. So, you know, but you don't want to, you don't want to lose the, that big vision of where you're going to go next, because really you need to be, you need to have what you're doing in that near-term period, the midterm period, and that long-term, they all tie together to actually grow and scale, especially if you're trying to build a, a venture capable company. 
So does this now fall on to what you talked about, which was learning what it takes to be a CEO versus an operator? Uh, it absolutely does. You know, the you as an operator, you're really only looking at that. You're looking at that near term window. Um, you fail to see, you know, as you as you look out to those further time periods, right? When you look out to the, those three year time periods, that's where you start hiring people that are better at that job than you, right? Like that's when you look at it and go, well, if we're going to get to that future point, I need to hire somebody. Yeah, I can go log on to to AdWords and create PPC campaigns, but that's not a. It's not efficient use of my time, but b. I'm never going to be as good at that as somebody that specializes. In. And oh, by the way, AdWords isn't the only component of our strat of our of our sort of marketing strategy that's going to lead to getting us to where we're going to be. So you really start having to look at the big picture rather than the micro. And as an operator, you are just going to focus on that micro. You're going to focus on that next six months. While getting enough data in from that micro side to be able to make those decisions. So taking your experience that you've had through the, the companies that uh, you've built, do you find that you could have been knowing what you know today, you've been more effective learning better how to operate as a CEO versus just operating as a startup founder? Is there a significant difference there that you can share to the audience? You know, focus on these three things. They'll help you better understand your market, your business, and how you drive your business forward. Because there's going to be another stage that, you know, when you get to series A, where you're going to have to try to tear that apart and start looking at a different way of looking at a macro of your business. Can you share some of those details? I mean, I, I think the... So it the lens is always sort of the same, and it, and it goes back to something that you said a little bit earlier: is um, focus on selling it, focus on the market, and that's really what's going to drive your success. Your success as a business, and also your success in venture capital. You know, you you don't run into too many cases of where a company is generating too much money to talk to VCs, right? If you're generating that, that's never an objection to an investment of oh, you're generating too much sales. I can't invest in you. Um, it, it may mean your valuation too high, but at the end of the day, like sort of sales and understanding where the market is going to go um, is one of those incredibly important pivot points to 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 deal with, especially early on. Um, and it's very very difficult for especially a technical founder to let go of their baby um, to basically say, you know, my vision is X, but the market wants Y. I'm going to deliver why. And as a technical founder and as a product oriented founder, you really, really like X. Like that's your idea. That's your baby. And if the market, but it, the market is saying, well, I don't really want that. Like that's not what I want. It's not what I need. You have to be able to let go of that and, and quickly shift to that. And I've worked with founders as, as an advisor and as an investor over the years that have walked into, that walked into meetings with large customers. Um, global brands and said, well, no, 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 I hear how you're doing it, but you're doing it wrong. You need to do it our way to use our product, right? That's not that that's not how you how you operate. So really that that focus on sell it first, give the market what it wants. Um, you know, not to it's not to be said that you can't create markets, but you have a much higher probability of success if you give the market what it wants. And then you're going to kind of keep iterating. And, and I've seen that you also spend a lot of time advising, coaching inside of businesses. So it sounds like you're kind of taking this 30 years of learning um, of wins, fails, et cetera, 
and learning again how to be a CEO. Is that kind of your mandate is trying to push that back into the ecosystem so that founders can better um, strap themselves with uh, valuable, uh, not just metrics, but valuable insights on how to actually run a company? Because I think from what I'm hearing and what I've learned as well along the way is that a lot of founders early on are running and gunning, and maybe they haven't matured enough in understanding how to get out of an operational role and get into the big macro view of where this company has to go. And it could be financial, could be many reasons. Um, but it sounds like a founder right from the get-go should be looking to speak with or on a regular basis, at least interact with uh, somebody that has that advisory coaching experience that can help guide them out of that operational role. Oh, absolutely. And if you can find a if you can find a mentor that can help you think big picture. Right. And, and that's one of the that's one of the big differences that you you can sort of point out between an operator and a CEO is that that level of strategic thinking. And I know it sounds cliche, but it's really having that big picture view and understanding the, the big picture vantage point, understanding where you're going to go, understanding that, you know, as I delegate this, as I delegate this particular task, Yes, it's going to take me time to delegate it, but it's also going to free me up time for things that only I can do as as the CEO or founder of this company. Um, but it it absolutely advisory boards if they're run well. And there's two things that I I, I would I I would suggest to any founder looking to find advisors is one make sure you have a rapport um, personally with the individual that you know you you it's not just oh my god. Jeff is really, really smart. He's worked with a lot of startups, worked with a lot of investors. I need to have him be an advisor, but the two of you don't have any kind of common ground. You don't relate to one another. Conversations are strained. Like that's that's no good in an advisor relationship. The second is you need to have advisors that don't insist on being the smartest people in the room. You need to have advisors that understand that concept that I was talking about before, that their expectation of you isn't adherence it's that synthesis right so that somebody that uh, somebody that yeah i've been there and done that uh whether it's building product whether it's marketing whether it's sales i've done it but it's also been a while and it's also been in a different company in a different market with different customers with a different team you know i don't expect you to necessarily do it exactly the way I, I i do it and that's what you should want from your advisors to say hey here's all the different things i've seen and i've done right and you pick founder and CEO, you pick how you think you should approach it, you know, which of those tactics, you know, which of those tactics, which of those approaches, how do you apply it to your own business? And a lot of times that's incredibly frustrating for advisors because they're used to being the smartest person at sales. Like they built a massive sales organization. So, you know, it it's not easy to say, well, hey, get what you did at Oracle two years ago that doesn't work for a five person startup. Like how do we scale that down? Um, you know, th those are sort of the two pieces, right? You have to have that rapport and they have to have, they have to be geared to mentor, not sort of rule, I guess. No, that's super valuable. And, and I think rapport obviously allows for the two to share information and then ensuring that the CEO is still the CEO. Your, your goal is to coach them into these next layers. So if you're in there trying to overpower and dictate how something's being done, then that's not really assisting them in growth and allowing them to start understanding big picture. So that mentorship really has to work like a mentor and, and supporting them and propping them forward. 
uh, with ideas or introductions to other people that can help them grow as well along their journey. Um, I think a lot of the time it's it's like a teacher, I guess. You know, your teacher is to help your students get to the next grade. It's not to figure out how to keep everybody in the same grade. Then nothing's going to move yeah. forward. Um, and, I, and I guess sometimes it gets tough because what you did 20 years ago, you may feel that experience is really warranted today, even though they didn't have TikTok back then. It's the same thing as uh, using Skype. And you're like, no, they really aren't the same. So the markets are changing and they are different and you have to adapt to those times. So I think it's really valuable that you're you're coaching, but you're not coaching from a top. You're coaching from an equal and helping mm-hmm. propping them up and giving them the value. So now taking what you said earlier and, and sharing that there is a, a big difference between on your role, angel versus VC, um, how did you see that change happening when you went from being an operator, being a CEO of a company, switching into now supporting through an angel network and being able to support founders? How did you find that transition went? And then you kind of took the whole leap right into VC. And I think there is always a misunderstanding what VC actually means versus what an angel is. Um, and maybe you can share a little bit about those differences too. In, so, I mean, it, it went poorly because um, I didn't personally understand that second piece, right? That, that it really is about, you know, I'm going to give you context and it's up to you to make decisions as CEO, right? Um, which is hard. I mean, you, you come from 20 years of being in the driver's seat. It's hard to now kind of move to the passenger seat and simply be the simply try to be the GPS to where they may take the route you give them, but they may also go go a different route. Um, so that that went relatively poorly. I think one of the things, one of the bigger differences between VC and um, between VC and uh, Angel is really the size of the seat that we have at the table. Um, one of the things that one of the one of the things I didn't realize becoming an angel is how transactional it is. Um, as much as a lot of the conversation in the ether is, hey, you'll become an angel investor, you'll become an angel investor, you know, you'll get to work with your portfolio companies. Um, you, you get to work with your portfolio companies, you know, you get to advise them, you'll work together, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. Really doesn't happen because there's so much work involved in fundraising for a company, especially from angels there is no time to develop a relationship, right? They take my check and move on to the next investor. They take their check and move on to the next investor. And that's not a criticism of the, of the founders. That's just kind of the nature of the way the process works in, in angel investing. Um, and oh, by the way, I have other things that are my day job. I have other responsibilities, roles. As I make the shift to, as you make the shift to being an actual VC, well, one, we're writing a much bigger check. Um, so hopefully you're not talking to 800 VCs like you would with angel investors. But two is part of my job and part of why uh, part of why I was basically hired, for lack of a better term, from by my investors is to provide stewardship and guidance to our portfolio. And that means that's my day job. Like if it, it that, that is what I'm supposed to be there to do. So there's a vastly different structure of how I interact with my portfolio companies, because A, it's part of sort of the, the mandate of our investment is that we are going to. Well, we will meet on a monthly basis, but B is my full-time job all day, every day is to, is to find new companies and support our existing companies. So it's my job, you know, it's my job to, if you need a contact at a company here in Dallas, it's part of my job to see if I can do everything I can through my network, my partner's networks, our investors, however I possibly can to find that contact at that company um, to help you. And that's, that's a vast difference between an angel investor that's doing this sort of as a as a hobby 
like it's not your job. Like it's not your job to, yeah, if I've got a contact that I can make an introduction to, I'll, I'll make an introduction. But the level of commitment is going to be very, very different if it's sort of a hobby or a, something you do in your spare time than it is as a vocation. And then you found that when you made that transition from founder to angel investor to now into the, the venture capital side of things, now you're almost stepping up a completely new level. So you went from operator CEO to angel tactical hands-on helping when you didn't think you needed to help and you're jumping in a lot to now the next layer, which is on the venture capital side, now you're t paying attention to other people's money, making that investment, and still having to do some of that operational side, but pulling yourself away enough where it's more tactical and it's more um, bigger vision, which is, hey, I can get you in front of this group, or I can move you into this area and help you facilitate that next move. Is that kind of the stages that you've gone through? And you really keep getting more of an umbrella view of this entire ecosystem as each stage you move on from. You, you really do have to keep sort of zooming out, right? And it's it's no different than your progression as an entrepreneur is that you keep zooming out. Like, you know, day one, you're writing code. At day one, you're writing code. Year 10, you don't even know, you don't even know what the code's written in anymore, right? Like, just, I think Python, maybe, um, right? But that's kind of the progression that you go through, even as an investor, is... You know, you go from this sort of intimate involvement, it, this, it, it, you, you go from being um, in it, it's a different sort of portfolio construction, but understanding you go from every investment I'm going to live, live or die with, right? Because this is, you know, it's my money, it's coming out of my checkbook. Um, and I mean, I'm invested in my funds, so I'm partly investing my own money. But um, as a VC, you take that much broader view is that it is, a, it is about the portfolio, it is about generating those returns. Um, for investors. And I know it may sound a little callous, but you know, I'm not going to live and die with every investment the same way I do as an angel investor, because the entire structure of VC is about that power law and it's about that portfolio. So you're not, you're going to look at the big picture, right? You, you need to look at how is, how are all of my companies doing? Not just, Hey, how is this one or how are these two doing? It really is about the, that entire portfolio, which again, it, it's very much, it's, it helps to actually push you to that macro strategic view because you're, you're thinking about your portfolio broadly, not individual companies. No, I love that. That's awesome. And, and it's, it really does give you this focus that I have to work as a whole versus individually. And if you don't shift to that, you'll spend so much time in the weeds, which is again, the problem of being an operator versus being a CEO. It becomes the same thing, an angel versus a VC. If you're stuck in the weeds, you'll start to lose more companies and lose more value because you haven't been strategic and, and coming in with that broader view. And, and the beauty is you also get an economy of scale, right? So ultimately what happens is, you know, as you, if you're, if you have that broad based portfolio view, you know, as we develop relationships with other investors, you know, maybe they're only a FinTech investor. Well, I, I don't need to try to convince you to talk to, you know, a deep tech investment or a, a, a platform play, right? Like, you know, I can develop that relationship with you knowing that at a certain point, I'll have a, I'll have an investment that you might be interested in partnering with us on because you know we 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 have a similar thesis or you know if, if I develop that connection with um, with a fortune uh, you know with a fortune 500 company here in Dallas right if I develop that relationship that relationship on both sides can benefit from the broader portfolio not just hey 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 look at this one thing from my one company it's 
you know, we become uh, we become a potential partner for a lot of different ways and a lot of different resources. So you do get that economy of scale as you move from being an angel to a, to a VC. I love it. There's one uh, one story that pops into my mind to uh, an earlier point that you were making about that shift. And um, I remember standing in the elevator with um, Calvin McDonald, who's now the CEO of Lululemon or has been for the last couple of years. And he was uh, my boss and we got in, came out of a meeting and stepped in the elevator and he looked at me and I guess I look like deer in headlights. And he said, uh, did that meeting go the way you wanted it to? And uh, I kind of had that, uh, not really, because in my head I was trying to process, how can I change this? And his comment was, now let's figure out how to shift it so that it gets to where you need it to be. And it's interesting that that is that, again, that bigger scale view is that you went in, you were tactful, it may not have worked. Now let's figure out how to make that bigger vision view work. So what do you need to make that happen? And I think in any any entrepreneur, as they grow that, scale that business and start to interest VCs, a lot of the things that you've shared are really getting them into that bigger picture so that they can execute and start to drive out, say, larger investments or bigger revenues, whatever that might be. So I think all of what you shared is, is uh, obviously amazing and very valuable. Awesome. The, the next thing uh, I want to dive into, because we got to talk some tech, maybe you can share a little bit about uh, the, the few of the questions I had. And, and I think that um, you could really kind of, um, I guess, blow these ones up. But I think a lot of companies tend to be focused today on uh, building AI, staying that they're AI, and being that you like to invest in AI. How many of the companies are you seeing are actually AI-based companies versus matching algorithms that they feel that they are building AI, but they haven't actually got to AI at this point? Is there a number, and are there a ways that you can get the founders to shift their mindset from, instead of using the buzzwords and being more tactful in this area, is there something you can share that say, hey, this is a way you need to go in order to get in towards being more of an AI com uh, complicit business versus mm -hmm. stating that you are and finding out later that you're not or whatever that might look like? Absolutely. So I, I, generally speaking, about a third of the companies that we see don't uh, that we pass on, that we actually take a, a close look at, don't actually fit our definition of AI. And, and our definition of AI is pretty broad. We include machine learning. We include um, we include some companies that have a long-term AI strategy that, hey, we need to go collect data. We need to go collect data for the next 18 months. Then once we get that data, then we can go do these other really cool things. And I think that's really the, the crux of what we look for as AI investors, right, is do you understand the tech and do you understand where artificial intelligence can create value in your product? And that's the that is the 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 key distinction that we look for as investors and we look for from founders and and from CTOs is where does it create value in your product? Because I really at the end of the day, your customer doesn't care that it's AI. Like truthfully. They don't care. What they care about is that it's 95% accurate in, it, it's 95% accurate, or the company that I know here in Dallas is 99.9% .9 accurate in transcribing an invoice, right? That the customer doesn't care that you're using AI to do it. it what they care about is that in, invoice has been transcribed properly. That's what they care about. That's what they really focus on. So what, we look for is is founders that know how to articulate the way the technology drives ROI in in their product. Um, where we tune out pretty quickly is, hey, here's where we're going to bolt on chat. Here's where we're going to bolt on sentiment analysis. Here's where we're going to go and take 
some off-the-shelf product and bolt it onto our product, that's in reality the AI, the 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 value being generated by artificial intelligence is really from the that third-party product you bolt it on. It's not from your product. So I know it's it, it's it's a bit broad, but um, you know, that's kind of really the uh, really the distinction is you know understanding what is it good at, which also means you don't need to actually understand the tech, right? You need to understand the four or five things that AI is good at and understand how those impact your product. You don't need to understand how to train a model. You don't need to know how to train a, 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 a deep neural net. Like you don't need to know how to do those things. You just need to know what do I need to give to the neural net and what do I get out of a neural net and how does that affect my product? And which is great. So does that also entail that when you're putting this together, you're looking heavily at that early team as well, and you're defining all the roles and saying, okay, you guys don't actually have anybody that is a Python developer. How are you actually really working in this AI stream? So are you really diving in as well to pinpoint out to make sure that all of these equal out to the output that you're looking for? So, I mean, I think to a certain extent, it's still such a nascent feel. I mean, it reminds me a lot of, uh, it reminds me a lot of the web in 95 when I got started in tech, right? Is you didn't have web developers, right? You were taking mainframe developers, you were taking client server developers, you were taking traditional developers and handing them HTML and going, hey, go build a web app, right? We're doing the same thing right now. And we're at the same level of maturity in the technology uh, with the technology and with the, 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 the with sort of the training um, in AI. So we're taking, you know, JavaScript developers, we're taking, you know, SQL developers and we're, we're turning them into to, to data scientists. So the exact skill sets on the team are less of a concern than actually understanding that big picture vision. So we are, we're investing so early that a lot of our companies, like, if you press me on it, it's like, yeah, they're not really, you know, they can't do AI. They really can't build, they can't build highly accurate models right now just because they don't have enough data or they don't understand enough of the, uh, they don't understand enough of the features um, in it. So, you know, we understand that there's a, there's an evolution and even generally speaking, whether it's AI or any kind of software product at the seed stage, your product is bubblegum and duct tape. Like it is not it, like what it's going to look like three years from now. Like it, the 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 term technical debt is going to be one that gets thrown around three years from now, and it doesn't matter what you do early on. So, no, fair enough, and it's good that you share that because as much as. We want everybody to be perfect and to build that 18-month system. It's not going to happen, as you mentioned earlier. It's going to be that smaller version, and that smaller version might be a few Band-Aids here and there that are kind of holding it together and popsicle sticks. But at the end of the day, maybe that is what is needed to prove the market, and then it's the next stage and the the next uh, shot of brilliance that's going to move them into the bigger picture, and, and that's going to help it. it absolutely. And I, I, had a, uh, I had a company that I, I launched and shut down a couple of years ago that was a recommender system in the, in the ticketing space. And before we ever trained any models, there was one key assumption we, need to, we needed to try and we needed to figure out, will consumers respond to a curated result, right? Will they respond to the recommendations? That's question number one. I don't need to build any AI to do that. And I don't, it, first is, will a consumer respond to curation? Then you start to get into, okay, what degree of curation is, is necessary? Because it may not even need, need to be curated and personalized one-to-one. -one. It may just simply be, 
let me curate it based on some high level factors. And now I've got a result without ever implementing it. So in a, in a lot of cases, you're going to go through that discovery process without having to, without having to go build the tech. Going back to a lot of our conversation earlier is like, you know, how do you get to that point and how do you get to that MVP without investing too much time and energy and training models doesn't, it, it, strangely training, changing, training your models and being accurate with your models in many cases doesn't prove that it actually solved the problem. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, taking that perspective and what you've built and all these great things you've done, blockchain, uh, tokenizing, mm -hmm. NFTs, and AI, tie all these things together, Web 3.0, where do you see the industry moving to? Are all of these going to be big, massive industries in the next three to five years, 10 years? Uh, are they like what you said, as they're the Web in 95, and these are all going to be uh, the best next things coming? Or do you see there going to be a shift? And do you think AI kind of dominates over this? Or is it a blockchain shift that gets up? What do you think is going to be the way that these uh, markets are going to play? So I, I look at AI is in the, the trough of disillusionment right now. We're starting to come out of it to where we're starting to see broader based acceptance, like that standard Gartner hype cycle to where, you know, about 2015, 2016, AI really peaked when everybody had a chat bot for everything and every single chat bot was terrible. And we basically turned the entire market off to, to artificial intelligence. Um, now we're starting to see it come out, but again, it's coming back. AI, AI is having sort of a resurgence because we're talking about the problem it solves. We're not talking about it's AI, you know, ooh, it's AI driven. It's really just, here's the problem that we solve. Um, I think we're, we, we just broke the peak on, on blockchain. Um, and we're heading into the trough of disillusionment. I think a lot of the sort of over exuberance, a lot of some of those early use cases um, have turned people off. But I think there's a, they're coming from the ticketing space. I can tell you that for smart contracts and open ecosystems, there's lots of opportunity with ticketing, right? And um, it's just going to take, there's a different, in, in blockchain, there's a different dynamic because it requires collaboration in places where lack of collaboration creates a competitive advantage, right? So you know, Ticketmaster has a competitive advantage because they don't collaborate. It's a closed ecosystem. Therefore, they own the, they own the vast majority of the data. They have control over the market. As soon as that opens up, and right, you know, as soon as a ticket becomes a thing that exists on a, a, a just a, a block on a chain, um, you know, now Ticketmaster loses that control. Now control gets handed out to handed back to the consumer. It's handed to the team. It gets handed to, you know, it gets taken away from Ticketmaster. And that that's one of the things that we need to solve in this process, in the process of adopting blockchain is how do you, how do you deal with those, uh, those incentive structures? Not well shared. And it, it makes me think of the music industry. TikTok becomes the, uh, decentralized part to how music is now being distributed everywhere. So you're losing the big players in music because of a TikTok, because of social media. So in the same instance with ticketing, Ticketmaster is that same thing. But if you drop that into a blockchain or drop that out that anybody can now equally go in and get tickets and you create that company that now does this, whatever that company is, you've now done the same thing you did to the music industry where you've dropped everything down to the common denominator where you can't go anywhere else. And that goes for all tickets. 
So there, there is a way to decentralize that. And I think you can almost look at this as that every industry is going into that uh, decentralized component where it's everybody's been running big on the bank side. And now you talk uh, in the last um, interview that we did, there was um, all of the banks in Latin America. Well, they're all doing a bad job or they have been recently doing a bad job. Well, now you can decentralize them all and create many, many, many players that all fill in the gaps along the bottom, which again, force that change like the music industry or like the ticket industry. Yeah, and, and that's that's where the opportunity is, right? And it's the that's the barrier to adoption. The, the barrier to me in, in decentralization does tend to be around the incumbent players fighting to hold on to their information advantage, right? Or their, their, competitive, their competitive advantage that's delivered by closed ecosystems rather than delivering value. Well, it sounds like it's going to be one big whopping change in the next 10 years. You're going to see a lot of these big players start to drop, I guess, because they're not going to be able to keep that control that they wish. Now, banking maybe in North America might be a little tougher because they've done a great job at managing it and controlling it. So maybe that's not as easily broken, but it seems like a lot of other players were, are going to be faced with these uh, incumbents coming in and changing their markets. Absolutely. Brilliant. All right, we're going to make a shift. We're going to go into uh, being a little bit more tactful now. We're going to talk to, uh, if you can share maybe a case study, if you will, of an experience or a startup that you've worked with in your past that really kind of define what it takes to be an entrepreneur. I think we all have these uh, glorious moments where we think entrepreneurship is billion-dollar uh, unicorns every day and every night but there are a lot of things that have to go into them. And maybe you can share a, a quick anecdotal story or something that you know of that really kind of blew that out of the water for you. So it, this is one that is relatively recent and it, it's one that goes back to a lot of our talk about how you work with, uh, how you work with advisors and synthesis of information and how you actually like, uh, how you adapt as, as an executive. So one of our portfolio companies had an opportunity, called me up and said, hey, we really wanna take advantage of this opportunity and my first response was, oh my God, no, um, run far, run fast, don't do it. And instead of leaving it at that, right? Instead of letting me just talk him out of it, he looked at me and he said, well, what are your objections to it, right? And I said, well, here's the three or four, uh, three or four objections that I have, you know? Um, and he said, well, if we can come up with a way to solve those, would you be in favor of, in favor of pursuing this opportunity? And I said, sure. Give me a week, schedule a call for next week, and, and we'll go from there. So he goes away. We schedule the call for next week. He comes back, sends me over, uh, sends me over kind of his like 10-point plan of, of how he's going to pursue this opportunity. And I look at that plan, and I'll be honest, it actually made me feel jealous as a as an operator. Like I looked at it and I said, wow, like he actually took the input for he took my input. And actually created a plan better than I think I could have created, right? And you know, I I looked at the I looked at the results, and I'm like, if you can make this work, this is a massive win, right? And I love that story from I love that story. A is an entrepreneur not willing to be an entrepreneur not willing to take no for an answer, but doing it in a way that isn't just pig-headed stubborn of no, nah, I'm going to do it anyway, but of listening to uh, listening to his trusted advisors, listening to the market, and saying. Hey, we need to make we there. There's something broken about the way we're pursuing this. Let's figure out a better way to do this and, and creating a better outcome. So that's probably one of my favorite stories about uh, of 
uh, as of late. And it ties into a lot of what we talked about. I love it. Uh, not taking no for an answer, but coming up and being strategic about it. I, I think that's brilliant. And it, and it, like I said, it, it puts you in a spot where you actually, I, maybe the word wouldn't be jealous. Maybe the word is excited for the fact that somebody was able to build something outside of your purview that you didn't think was possible in the space. And they proved you that they could, and that goes to your coaching and advising. So that's a good thing. It makes uh, makes you feel good because you're like, hey, man, we helped you in a way get this far. And now you've really stepped it up a notch. You're really a CEO. And I think uh, that's pretty phenomenal. So that's a, an, an incredible story. I love it. All right. We're going to move into um, rapid fire questions. Okay. So pick one or the other as an investor perspective. Okay. Uh, founder or unicorn? Or Sorry, founder or co-founder? Founder. Unicorn or a four-year 10x exit? I'm a VC now, unicorn. Love it. Tech or CPG? Oh, tech. NFT or Web 3.0? Web 3.0. AI or blockchain? I got to say AI. My OP <laughs> First time founder or second, third time founder? Uh, second or third time founder. First money in or Series A? First money in. Angel or VC? VC. Board seat or observer? Observer. Safe or convertible note? Convertible. Lead or follow? Either, but follow. Equity or interest? Uh, equity. Favorite part of investing? Uh being on the bleeding edge. I love that part too. Number of co companies invested per year. Uh, six to eight. Love it. Any preferred terms? Uh, we typically cap out around a 15 million post. So we're usually looking at companies, you know, we're, we're looking at rounds between 750 and 3 million, um, up to about a 15 million post money. Perfect. Two qualities a startup needs in order to stand out to you. Um, well, it's really uh, their product. Uh, their product needs to be a need. Um, the, their product needs to be a need, and their team really needs to understand the problem that they're solving, um, whether they have experience in it or not. Okay, uh, we're going to shift to the personal side. Sure. Book or movie? Movie. Superman or Batman? Batman. Restaurant or picnic? Restaurant. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Bezos. Mountain or beach? Mountain. Bike or run? Bike. Big Mac or Chick McNuggets? Nuggets. Trophy or money? Money. <laughs> beer or wine? Uh, beer. Camera or mobile phone? Camera. King or rich? Rich. Concert or amusement park? Amusement park. Fortune cookie or birthday cake? Birthday cake. TED Talk or book reading? TED Talk. TikTok or Instagram? TikTok. Facebook or LinkedIn? LinkedIn. First or sorry, most famous person that pops in your mind? 
Uh, probably because I have our office full of it. Uh, Walter Payton. Nice. Favorite movie and what character would you play? I favorite movie is Matrix. Um, so it'd have to be Neo, right? Yeah, that's perfect. Favorite book? Uh, I'm supposed to say something venture related, but I, I, all that's coming to mind right now is uh, um, The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. I haven't read that one, I don't think, but it sounds like uh, it's good. doesn't have to be venture related. Ah, mm-hmm. We learn from everything we read. Mm-hmm. First brand that pops into your mind? Apple. You're priming with the with the, the, the AirPods. <laughs> Favorite sports team? Chicago Bears. The Bears. Favorite, well, sorry, what is the meaning of success to you? Uh, the meaning of success is not having any have-tos, right? Like, if you're successful, you don't have to get up today. You don't have to go to that meeting. You don't have to do anything, right? That's success to me, not having have-tos. Let's see. I like that one. That's uh, it's good. I don't want any half twos either. Yeah. Uh, what is your superpower? Um, I'm a really strong read of people, even if I haven't met them. I like it. it I like data. So in in the case of uh, asking these questions, it's uh, profiling, I guess. But it, <laughs> you learn a lot from it, and it's uh, it's fascinating. But I can say that Apple, and maybe it's the AirPods, but Apple is like a sixty percent choice of. Uh, of investors and um well i I've, I've been looking at the air i've been looking at the airpods for the last you know 45 minutes so like I, it, <laughs> you are doing a little bit of priming although i've also been looking at the dell logo on my laptop too so you know they do a great job apple is phenomenal on how they they do market so regardless of just the you know there's a lot of signals but they they do a great job and uh for not being the number one mobile carrier etc cetera, etc cetera, they've done a pretty phenomenal job so uh, but we learn we learn everywhere we go. So big fan of that. Uh, but I think, um, uh, David, I want to say that it's been a pleasure. I've taken lots of notes. Uh, it's been awesome to be able to get the time to spend with you and to dive into uh, not only your background, but what you guys are up to today and how you guys see the space of AI and, and all of the uh, uh, areas that kind of support it and where it's going. But again, I appreciate all the insights. It's been awesome. And the way we like to kind of end our show is we like to give you the last comments and thoughts and share that to the startup community and to investors alike. So I turn it over to you, but thank you again for uh, sharing today. It's been a privilege getting to chat with you. Well, thank you. It's uh, it, it's been the same. This has been a, it's been a ton of fun. Um, I mean, honestly, the, the, the thing that I, I, I would share with founders is, you know, DMs are open, email is open, you know, we we love to talk to founders and our goal as as founders is that, um, I just said this today, is that every founder we work with should be referenceable, whether we invest them or not. Like you may not like me very much because I pass on your company and you're not a fit for our thesis, but hopefully everyone that I encounter, we've treated with respect, that, you know, we've treated you fairly, um, and that, you know, you'd be willing to say those things about, and we, and we treated you with honesty, right? Um, that's kind of our, that's kind of our goal and how we want to work with the world and, um, hope to get the chance to, to work with you more and, and, and work with some of your listeners. I love it. And last question, how do people get a hold of you? What's, uh, is there email, uh, LinkedIn? What's the best way? Uh, DMs are open on Twitter. 
reach out on LinkedIn and also just David at centiro.vc. Um, happy to talk to happy to talk to anyone. We don't we don't require warm intros. I love it. Well, again, I appreciate all your time, David. Thank you very much for sharing. Awesome. Thank you, Jeff. Well, there's been a lot of uh, great, great discussion with David and certainly a lot of things that, that we dived into uh, from your MVP to, you know, even if you're going to start off instead of building the big system, there was always that retraction and going and building something small, getting out to market, testing the market, learning from them. Uh, you know, there's lots of inter, uh, companies that are changing from paper to digital, and hopefully they're all at that stage now. Uh, but, you know, the synthesis was really the one that really stood out for me on his advisory side and how to make and build the CEO. So not just be an operator and running a company, but being the CEO of a company. I think that's really impactful today uh, as startup founders start to grow their business and start to get out of the day-to-day -day and start moving into that micro. I think he shared a lot of uh, great um, information and insights on how you kind of move from uh, you know, building out this strong rapport with your team um, and learning and being the best in that industry, taking insights from advisors, coaches, everybody, and then synthesizing that back into your strategy, into your plan, and then being able to keep moving yourself forward and growing and allowing your team to take over and become the drivers of areas of your business as you grow as a, as a founder and grow into that CEO role and start being more macro. So a lot of great insights, very exciting um, conversation. And I will have to say it was... Um, Always great to talk with a fellow techie. So thank you everyone for joining us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to share with your friends or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and or Stitcher. Feel free to share an audio or video clip around our show with any questions that we may be able to include in the next future podcast. Find us at marketing at opn.com openpeoplenetwork.com. Your support and comments are truly appreciated. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com or startup events. Visit openpeoplenetwork.com. Thank you and have a fantastic day.